Again, Joshua chapter 3, we continue uh, to follow Israel. Uh, They've been in one area, more or less, in the first two chapters. Uh, Chapter 1, Israel finds themselves right on the edge of the Jordan, more or less. Uh, The Jordan this time of year has overflown its banks. We'll see that. It's harvest time. Uh, Joshua 2 is probably a refrain between two narrative sections in chapter 1 where we look at Rahab uh, and the confirmation that God is going to give to Israel the land uh, of Canaan. And here in chapter 3, Israel crosses over, and then next week in chapter 4, we will look at the memorial stones that Israel raises in order to remember and to mark God's sovereign deliverance of them across the Jordan into the land of promise. And so here in Joshua chapter 3, they move even closer, prepare to go over, and then they cross over the Jordan. When when I read this, I want you to think of a second generation, sort of mini Red Sea crossing. Uh, Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a small space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure, Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not yet passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here. And hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take for yourselves Twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was. When the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, 
the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you tonight and we ask, as we have gathered again, as we endeavor to hear from your word, what you would have for us, grant to me wisdom and unction, clarity, not only in my thinking, but in my speaking, that we would be a people who are faithful, even as you have given us the land and brought us over into it, we would be faithful as those who will inherit it one day to continue the work, the mission of building the church. Lord, that we would raise up, even tonight, in our hearts, you as Lord, and that we would think about what it means to labor faithfully for you all of our days. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. It's a theme that is important to us, and I've repeated it many times. And if it gets old, then I know I've done my job, because I know you'll remember it. And that is that God will, as he has done in times past, work in ways that are not altogether predictable, but in ways that the people of Israel may say, this is clearly something that God is doing. And the way in which God does this is he repeats redemptive refrains, like a tune or a verse or a little section within a, a, a musical um, hymn or even psalms, whether it's popular music or sacred music, uh, there are those things that are repeated like a chorus time and time again, except the chorus changes. It grows. We often call this the thin red line of redemption or the golden strand of redemption. I remember uh, in high school... I got my hands on a book that was co-written by R.C. Sproul, and I don't remember the other guy's name right now, and I hate to say that, but Sproul was of the two, certainly the more well-known. And in it, this book called What's in the Bible, he and another scholar took the reader through every book of the Bible and endeavored and did well at tracing covenant redemption, uh, the work of God in redemption, what you might call historical redemption or historical theology going through every book of the Bible and showing how this particular book fits into the overall theme and narrative of redemption. And it blew my mind. And though I lived in a house where covenant theology was king, I had not yet really discovered those things for myself. Myself. Selves. <laughs> There's just one of me. Myself. And it impacted not only the way I thought about the mission and work of the church, but my own place within it and how God is continuing to work among us. One plan, one people, one redeemer. And in Joshua, it's merely a continuation of the themes that we have seen before. God is, through his servant, leading his people further on, further in, further up to his holy mountain for worship. And there are themes that we will continue to unpack but for now, we find this one again. God will do for the second generation mighty deeds and wonders that show them he is not done. 
He will continue. He will continue to bless and give them those things which he has promised. And tonight, an event not unlike the one that the first generation experienced, the passing over the Red Sea here, being baptized into and out of another body of water, this time the Jordan River. Two points then that I want to make tonight, and I hope will not only be of some theological and scriptural significance to us as we understand the word, but also our own mission and work as the church today. Two points. The first, something new yet old, something new yet old, and then second, consecration and crossing over. Consecration and crossing over. Let's look at the first point, something new yet old. I would put it this way. This is the next generation's Red Sea event. The crossing of the Jordan will be for the second generation a sign, though, of lesser outward glory. I think we can admit that. If they would have been able to talk to their parents, which they would not, for they are all dead in the wilderness, they may have said, we crossed over the Jordan, and they may have said, well, we crossed over the Red Sea. There's even something of that theme. As we approach the revelation and manifestation of the Messiah, though we are still early days, early days, in the revelation of God and his covenant to a nation, there is, as we move to the Messiah, and in particular Messiah himself, and the manifestation of the glory of God in the New Testament church, as greater inward glory grows, as we reach the zenith of the coming of Christ who appeared in all humility, the expression of greater inward glory, the diminishing of outward glory. Now, we have not yet gotten to the temple, which is the culmination of outward glory. We still see this theme throughout, but it is no less glorious. Even as God led the first generation through the Red Sea, he will lead this generation through an impassable body of water. And now maybe... A small group of people could have found a way to get over the Jordan, but we're talking about a nation. We're talking about men, women, and children. It's like that point, if you ever played the old game Oregon Trail, when you come to a river, what do you do? Do you chalk the wagon? Do you try to make it on our four wheels? Or do you go down the river to find somewhere else to cross? And it was always a gamble, because if the river was too deep and you sort of went through on all four wheels, the wagon could be swept away. And if it was even more uh, fierce and deep than you expected, even if you chalk the wagon, take the wheels off and float it like a boat across, it could also be destroyed. It was a dilemma in those early days of early video games that I played. You can't just take a nation across a body of water. It is still a miraculous event that is a testimony of God's continued presence and preservation. And it was as much for Israel, the preservation of physical life, as it was confirmation of Joshua's calling. This was as important for Joshua and his relationship with Israel as it was for Israel and their relationship with the Lord. Both things were strengthened and improved. 
God will show himself. And so here early in the morning, Joshua rises and he prepares them. They move closer and by the edge of the Jordan, they remain three days until the officers go through the camp and they tell them what to do. Verse 2, when you, halfway through that verse, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out. The Ark, which represents God's covenant faithfulness and in particular the mercy seat upon which it is capped, is really a figure of God's presence among his people. Carried by the priests, it goes first. The people were to always follow God. And not only that, but at the end of that little section, the end of verse 4, do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Do you ever feel that way in life? I've not seen this place before. And what is the response of the Christian? In light of God's faithful Leading in the past, it makes sense that he will continue to lead. Now then, it's different than now. We have God's word and accompanying the word of God, the almighty third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, and he leads us. He leads us in the way that we should go. This was a different time and a different manifestation of the presence of God. And God was saying, wait, wait. And I will show you the way to go. But while you are waiting, verse 5, sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. That is, set yourselves apart. Think about what's going to happen. Consecrate yourselves. Already Israel, between the Red Sea and the Jordan, has received an enormous amount of law regarding how they are to consecrate themselves wholly unto the Lord. Busy yourself with the consecrating rites of the Mosaic Covenant. Make yourself ceremonially clean. Because what was about to happen was a wonder of sacramental significance. It was baptism. It was the baptism of a nation. It was the setting apart of God, a holy, visible people, in one go. All of you, we're going in, we're coming out, and by the time you come out, what is clear to you is what God is saying of you. You are his chosen and special people. You are consecrated unto him. If you can survive, you can thrive. You are his people. And then the people were lined up. We see this in verse 8. With the priests entering the water first while they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And then the twelve representatives after them before the whole nation. And we see that in verse 12. God is marching his people in a way even then that represents the covenantal structure. And how we are to think of how the nation of God is led through water. If baptism represents death and resurrection, water 
is the instrument that represents our own death and resurrection. And who leads us in that way? Who is the sign and the type? The priests represent whom? The one who goes before us and leads us in the way that we must go in order to be delivered into the land. We follow our great priest, even as Israel followed their priests. And this is how God would exalt Joshua in their midst, as he did Moses. He will do the same thing again so that Israel might not look back so longingly for the days of Moses, but the days that are to come. For it is not men who are our ultimate confidence, nor is it even those historical moments. We are not strict traditionalists because we think that the great days are behind us. Oftentimes we think of this way, even eschatologically, that we are the lesser sons of greater sires. That is absolutely, unequivocally untrue. And we ought not think that way about ourselves. For Christ is ever leading onward. But Christ is revealing, though they do not know it is Christ in Joshua chapter 3. The commander of the army of the Lord, who is that? It is none less than the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, who Joshua later meets. And he asks him that question, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, nay, I am but for the Lord. And the implication is what? The question is put to Joshua, who are you for? Who are we for? It is always Christ It is Christ that goes before. It is Christ that goes down. It is Christ that comes up. And it is he of whom we read. He leads a train of captives in his trail, in his cloak. We are connected to him. We are united to him. But in the Old Testament, God exalted men whom he called in order to show Israel two things. The kind of son and seed of the woman that they were to hope and pray for. Pray for someone like Joshua, like Moses, which is why many mistook Christ for Moses or Elijah. Why? Because they were thinking covenantally. They just did not see all they needed to see. And the inevitable weakness of in, and inability of men is the other thing that we are to see, and Israel was to see. That not only are we to pray for someone like Moses, like Joshua, but someone greater One who is, as Joshua wrote at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, even greater than Moses. Who could that be? Who could it be? Well, certainly it must be a man who can bring a nation through an event that we have to call baptism. That is why it's something new, yet something old. Something new, yet something old. Now second, consecration and crossing over. As Israel is looking and they see the priests put their feet into the water as they are carrying the ark, which represented God's covenant faithfulness and his presence among his people, the river stopped flowing down from that point. 
and it rose, the New King James, in a heap. Uh, Recently, I was teaching in my middle school Bible survey class, and we were talking about the Red Sea, and every single question was not the redemptive historical significance of the Red Sea and why I want to talk about baptism, and they want to talk about did they see whales and fish? What did the water look like? And I thought, I don't know, have you been to an aquarium? And you come to the glass, and there's the glass standing all in a heap. (laughs) Hopefully it's well-structured and organized. Usually when I think of a heap, I think of laundry lying on the floor. But there it stood, stopped, a wall of water, while all the water flew, flew, flowed. (laughs) It wasn't flying. That would be something. Down the river. And it stopped. And not only did the water stop, but as you can tell from the last week of just constant drizzle and rain, the ground, even when the rain stops several hours and even days later, if the sun doesn't come out, what what do you find? Just soggy mud. It is not just the miracle of a river stopped. It is going across ground that has no right to be dry. It's passable. It's passable. It is judgment forestalled. It is something antithetical to the water in Noah's day where men who were not within the ark and their families were drowned underneath the deluge. This is what baptism is. And it informs even today our doctrine of baptism. It is for the saints of God a washing and a consecration, but it is for the lost a means of judgment. It goes over their heads, but not for Israel that when Christ, who would one day walk upon the water, an even greater miracle than this. I can walk across dry ground, but I cannot walk on water. Peter did for a moment, and then was strengthened by Christ and did again. All of this testifies to not just the leadership and the calling of Joshua. He's not the miracle worker. And we ought not look to men in that way. It is Christ who goes before them. They were following the ark. They were following their priests. And they were doing so because God had commanded them. That is what we find in verses 9 through 13. In verse 14, So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan, that the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people... And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water. And it wasn't just within its normal banks. It was broad. It was wider than usual. It was an even greater miracle than would have been normally. The waters stopped. They stood still, verse 16, and rose there in a heap way far away. It's not like an aisle. How do you fit one million more people through an aisle? You don't. You need a broad highway. God is confirming, you may pass. This is the consecration, the setting apart 
of Israel once again, as he had done in the past between Israel and Egypt. Now, Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 5, he speaks of Christ himself being with the people of Israel, leading them out of Egypt. And if it is Christ that led them out of Egypt, surely it was Christ that provided the fresh water out of the bitter. He himself was the rock that was struck. Christ is the one who was with Moses, who met him on the mountain. He is the one who is the pillar of fire and smoke, who inhabited the holy place. Now, of course, it is the Trinity, for in Christ the fullness of God dwells, even bodily when he became like us. But it was in particular the Redeemer, the husband, the bridegroom, the pursuer of the lost, the one who was given the elect by the Father. Christ is leading them. And so really it is Christ who goes before them and he makes it possible for them to go through water and not be consumed. And how can you not think then of Christ's work who bore our sins upon the tree, who went down into the grave and then came up out of it And that we who follow him in his death, who join him also in his resurrection, worship and labor and fight for the cause of Christ who wield the sword of the Spirit, we go to war as a consecrated, baptized people. Even as Israel went down and comes up, we go down and we come up. And it is this rehearsal of death and resurrection that is the theme of Christian baptism. To be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is to say of Christ, in him I am brought over. In him, death has no effect upon me. Christ brings us across. So let me make an eschatological point then. Eschatology just means things pertaining to the age of the church in the days of today, between Christ's first and second coming. We are not a wilderness people. We are a promised land people because we have been led there by Christ. What was the wilderness for Israel? Was it God's holding ground until he got things together, like a waiting room in an airport. If you'll just wait here a little bit longer, soon your flight will depart to glory. You'll be raptured. No, this belongs to a whole other category of theological thought to which we have no relationship whatsoever except to say, I reject that. Now, what I mean by we are not a wilderness people is that we do not experience times of difficulty and judgment under God. But as a people, as a church, as a nation that is baptized into Christ, the New Testament church, and all of whom are connected to Christ by faith, we are not under covenant judgment. We have been liberated. And if baptism is a sign and seal of our being united to Christ in his death and resurrection, it would only follow that as the generation that is to come, 
we experience an even greater glory than this generation, the second generation. That in Christ, we have been brought into a land of which we are pilgrims, but it is more in this way. As my parents get older, we have conversations about things like the estate. I don't like having those conversations. I don't care what they'll leave to me. You get this. I just don't want them to leave. But they're going to leave one day. It happens to us all. It's already happened to my parents' parents. It happened to uh, around the time I was in college and a little later and a little earlier, just depended on who it was. But one of the things that I think about when I think about the Fowler estate is the house. And who gets the house? What's going to happen to it? The inheritance. When you think about this life and the life that is to come and the work of the church, I don't want you to think about it in this way. I'm just waiting for that last helicopter to leave Saigon We're just waiting in the airport waiting room in order for my flight to come up and then I'm out of this hellhole. To put it rather euphemistically. This is how the the Christian church often thinks of the world. That this world belongs to Satan. But who died and rose in this world? And who is with him? Is it Jericho's world? What do we see later on? Does Jericho inherit the land? No. But then again, neither does Israel. Why? Because not all of Israel is Israel. There were those who perished in the wilderness, yes. But this generation, like those who are in Christ Jesus, are led over into that place that is their inheritance. So I say all that stuff about inheritance to lead to this point. The inheritance that is this world is like that which will be left to a child one day. When my children walk around that house, they can say, this is my house. But my name is not yet on the deed. It is not yet fully mine. But what has Christ said to us? One day, you will help me judge the earth and the nations and angels. And even as we trod underfoot, the nations who refuse to kiss the sun, and even as we move through this world with the gospel And we see Aka Indians converted, even through martyrdom. Or the flesh-eating tribes of the Pacific Indies. And we will see nations in Europe and Asia who are right now rife with atheism and mysticism and animism. They will be conquered. Why? Because Christ has died and Christ has been raised. Israel's mission didn't end in the crossing of the Jordan. It began. 
In fact, all of the law that came before the book of Joshua was not even kept until they were in the land. Their whole episode of covenant faithfulness to God would take place after the Jordan. And that is where we are. We are another generation led by Christ, baptized not into one small geographic region of which we were to lay claim just east of the Mediterranean, but the whole wide world. What is our Jordan? It is the grave. And we have been raised with Christ. So what is happening? Well, for the Israelite, on the simple face of it, the mission is progressing. We have the luxury, the benefit and the blessing of having this much Bible that has come after this much Bible. It's a lot of Bible. And we look at it and go, oh, we see what Christ is doing. And they were going, what is Christ doing? They didn't even call him Christ. That's how much more Bible is essential to the establishment and the exercise of our faith. What are they doing? They are being brought home. But not the home that will one day ultimately be realized. When you are birthed into and baptized into and consecrated into the house of the living God, you are born into a home that is in a state of dire disrepair. And it is your mission and mine to do what? To lay claim of it for Christ, for the crown, for the king, and for the kingdom. Home is sweeter and more glorious when you have to fight for it. And that is what Christ has called us to do. Why does Christ tarry in his coming? Well, because he wants us, who are the manifestation of himself here on earth as his body, to build more. To see more people brought through death into life. To baptize. Because the mission of the church is a, is a nation redeeming mission. We want those guys on that side of the river to be brought over to this side of the river. But only through Christ Jesus. Come then the invitation is. But it is not come... And that's it. But it is come and prepare for war. Take dominion yourself. Worship. Wield the sword of the Spirit. And so at last I'll ask this question. Do you wish to be home and have a home? Isn't this the way it is? I remember one Sunday night. Worship was great. We come home. And my wife says... Smell gas. This, well, I still can't smell gas because COVID. <laughs> and I said, I don't smell gas. Well, I smell gas. And so what do we have to do? We have to call the gas company. It's Sunday night. I want to rest. I'm done. I've had enough. And I can't go into my own home because the gas company says, go sit outside. It's cold and wait. And then the guy shows up in his hazmat suit, right? Because it's the days of COVID. And we're sitting out there waiting, and he goes, and he reaches behind the stove, and just a little turn, 
of the pipe that connects the stove, the range, to the wall. That's all it was. These are the kinds of things. Because we want to be home. We want to be with Christ and for the story just to ride off or riding off into the sunset. And yet we come to Christ and we realize there's a lot of things that need to happen. The plumbing is broken. The gas line is, is leaking. The floor is rotting. And he says, you and I and by the Spirit, according to the plan of the Father, we're going to enter into the grind that is the work of building the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So do you want to have a bright hearth? Then you're going to have to chop wood. Don't shrink from the days that come after the Jordan. Because crossing over is not the end. It is the beginning. And that is why Christ has given us the table. It is a sacrament that lies across the Jordan. It is a sacrament for a consecrated people. Because the work is hard and we get tired. And we are hungry. Not just of body, but of our souls. And so Christ says, I will feed you like manna from the heaven. And I will feed you. And by God's grace, as we continue, he will give us the reward that is due our labors. Let's pray.